Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello! So, last week uh, we discussed Total War Troy, and relating to that, uh, Troy and I, the... Oh, this is going to suck. This is going to be confusing. This is this has not come up before on the show, but we finally... It's finally going to be an issue. Uh, your name, uh, Troy. Um, so Mr. Goodfellow and I, uh, were discussing the other week that this might be a good time to finally revisit a movie that I think we both have an unusual degree of fondness for, uh, given how it's generally remembered, but we are both, uh, fans might be too strong, but we both find things to admire in Wolfgang Peterson's, uh, Sword and Sandals epic, Troy. So we were discussing uh, thematic pairings that might go with Troy, and we saw, we decided this might finally be the moment to check out the director's cut of Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven, a film that I think, uh, Troy, you and I had both seen, but the theatrical cut, which apparently, and now that I've seen it, I agree, is a vastly different film uh, than the than the director's cut. Uh, and so we'll, we'll sort of be looking at two films about major sieges, although whether each really meets the criteria of being a proper siege, uh, we will have to discuss. And then, Troy, it sounds like you've also been um, just drinking deeply of B-movies that could pl- like plausibly tie into this theme of uh, cities under siege. Yeah, I mean, this was sparked by our discussion of Troy just in general, both in the Discord uh, and uh, your review and uh, other podcast members' reviews of Troy. And it's a total war game. So in total war games, generally sieges get short shrift. But here we have Total War Troy, which is a game, which is a story of the most famous siege, fictional uh, siege, in history, uh, in a quasi-historical setting. And it's a game about that in a game engine that really isn't about sieges. Um, and games in general have a bad time with sieges. Um, but then so do films. And here we have two movies which are about famous historical sieges, the Siege of uh, Jerusalem, uh, when Saladin finally uh, takes the city from Crusader hands. And we have, of course, Wolfgang Peterson's blockbuster Brad Pitt, Orlando Bloom, Eric Bana movie about the Trojan War. It's kind of does what Creative Assembly does. It's a kind of, let's get the gods out of this. This is about armies, you know, fighting it out. Though, you know, you always have to have you know, a Creative Assembly game. You have to have some sort of religious piety, be nice to the gods type thing. So we have these two famous sieges, and I think... These are two very interesting movies, both in how they uh, avoid avoid their sources, avoid history, how they try to understand sieges, and how many times they fall into there are all these movie tropes they fall into to make a siege seem interesting. I do want to, and Troy is a film that I've had some affection for in the past. I watched it again, and I like it a lot less than I did, but now I know why I liked it before. Okay, so let's let's dig into this a, a little bit. I think so. These movies were released pretty close together in time. Their development uh, pretty close together in time. And my feeling 
considering the, the the moment these movies were released into is that they're both um they're both trying to react to sort of the early years of the war on terror right they're both movies that are i think in some ways trying to grapple with uh, both the kind of vainglorious imperialism that defined the George W. Bush years and also are trying to wrestle with maybe the Samuel Huntington-esque uh, like clash of civilizations worldview where there there could be there are there could be these struggles uh, between completely different civilizations that like could only end in tears and the destruction of one versus the other. And both of these films, I think are attempts to react to that discourse with something that is more uh, like affirmatively secular humanist. But I also think along the way they end up, I like the both movies in some ways seem like they struggle to imagine why any, anyone would fight for anything at all. Um, when it comes down, when it comes down to like, what are people's causes? It all becomes very personal, right? There's like any sort of ideology or political belief in these films seems to come under a great deal of scrutiny, except for a kind of humanist, uh, view of relations and power. Yeah. I mean, you see the, uh, um, Afghan Iraq wars most clearly in Kingdom from Heaven because that was clearly a movie that was made with these in mind. It is uh, Ridley Scott doing his thing about why can't we all get along? Um, you can talk about all the crusader tropes it picks into there. It's a little less voiced, uh, at least the conflict of civilizations, uh, East versus West thing in Troy, even though even Herodotus characterized the Trojan War as a battle between, you know, Greece, between Europe and Asia. So this is like an old theme um, in Greek history and Greek culture. So the Greeks going into Turkey and kicking some Turkish arse uh, sort of thing. Um, but if the, certainly Troy, let's start with Troy, because it is the first of the two, and I think it's leaping most, most directly off the game. It is really a a movie about why are we having this war? What is worth fighting for? And we have the, as in many of these, it seems to be, I, I hard, I've yet to find a Trojan War film uh, or dramatization where Agamemnon's not a jerk, where the whole Greek enterprise isn't called into question, where it's a campaign for uh, the submission of Troy or access to Black Sea trade or what have you, though the historical, the historical source, Homer's poem, of course, is about none of that. It's about honor. It's about getting a man's wife back. It's about Greek hum be being a manly Greek and doing manly Greek things for either the pride of the Menelaus's pride for having his wife stolen from him, Agamemnon's pride for seeing his brother humiliated, Achilles' pride for just being the best at what he does and then losing his uh, lover slash cousin uh, to uh, in the war. Um, and the motives of the Greeks are always the interesting thing here, right? Because the motives of the Trojans are the ones being invaded. They don't need any motivation to defend their homeland. 
so it is very much, uh, uh, I hate to quote Shelby Foote, but you know, it's the old story of the Civil War. Well, why are you fighting? Because you're down here. That's good. Why are the Trojans fighting? Because the Greeks are there. Um, even though Paris's provocation uh, is the putative cause. So we have this movie about a siege that's really about how men respond to war, how they react to war, how they deal with the fact the war isn't going all that well. It's very much of the Trojan epic and of the Troy movie is the war not going to anybody's plans. And I think that's a very human uh, poem and a very human story. It's funny watching the film now uh, because I think it is also... Movies have... They're, they're kind of dominant aesthetics in any era. And I think at this point we were still kind of in the period where some of what Saving Private Ryan had set in motion was still out there. And so, like, to me, it is very hard for me to see the um, the storming of the beach of Troy uh, as anything other than sort of an attempt by Peterson to shoot like the landing craft going ashore. uh, But in olden times, uh, right. And kind of trying to highlight the ways that these, these things are similar, right? So you have uh, beachfront fortifications that the Trojans have put up that, Look a lot like what you would have seen. Uh, well, they, 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 they have to tank traps, for God's sakes. They have yeah. wooden spikes nailed into the beach. These are tank traps. Yeah, exactly. They make no sense, right? Like that 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 doesn't yeah. accomplish anything. But it is there to visually reference things that audiences of that moment would have associated with, like storming a beach, right? Uh, and so the the Trojans are building the Atlantic Wall. Uh, in a similar vein to what you see in The Longest Day or uh, or Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but I think the the other... I think there's interesting parts of this movie that uh, it gets a lot of things right, I would argue, about the Iliad that I think are, are tricky. Uh, to, mm-hmm. to bring across, I think one of the things is Troy goes out of its way to say that uh, it is going to try and get at some sort of historical reality uh, behind this conflict. It is going to try to de- uh, demythologize the conflict a little bit. And so the way it hedges around that is, you know, when you see uh, Thetis, for instance, She's just there, right? And it's weird yeah. that she's there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Achilles goes down to the beach and there's a woman there. And she seems to know, like, what his options are. And she basically holds out the the fate of Achilles uh, and lets him lets him choose from among the fates he has. But the movie, that's, a, that's actually the closest the movie comes to saying, this is a time of myth. The gods are real. All of this is faded. The rest of it, I think, is, is trying to bring across this notion. And it's a tough thing to... I I think it's a tough thing to dramatize that uh, all these things are kind of faded. You see Achilles accept what his fate will be right up front. And then the trick of the movie is to organically drive these characters to their fate while also giving them agency along that path and trying to show the way they make decisions uh, that 
cut against their own inclinations, but drive them closer to that to that ultimate fate. I think the movie pulls that stuff off really, really well. Like it has a decent understanding of like the character motivations of the cast of the Iliad. Yeah, I mean it is. Um the movie's only really, I think, good or at its best when Achilles it's a, when it's about Achilles. When it's about his drive and i mean the the film opens with uh agamemnon having to take out the thessalians and achilles is supposed to be his hero and of course wolfgang peterson is a super straight achilles in bed with two girls just finished the night of partying threesome and he's really not doesn't want to fight as agamemnon's champion in a one-on-one battle but he does because this is he says, you know, I'm a warrior. This is what I do. This is what he's, I don't want to say trained for, but yeah, this is kind of what he's trained for. Him and his crack squad of Myrmidons, who I guess are like commandos, uh, they're the best soldiers. This is all Achilles seems to know. Um, and eventually he, you know, he softens a bit uh, through the movie. He goes a bit, you know, more human and humanist. But it does, Achilles and this pull for, you know, greatness in the battlefield and everlasting fame. And this is, you know, I mean, the mess at the very beginning, you know, uh, he's the messenger boy. Says, oh, you know, that guy you're fighting, he's awful big. I'm glad that I don't have to fight him. And Achilles says, well, that's why no one will ever know who you are. I mean, this is what, this is what heroes do. Heroes, you know, do the fighting. Um, he's going to be remembered for the people that he kills. And that's, I mean, that's, that, that, that is arete. That is the Greek concept of, you know, manly greatness um, that the Iliad tries to convey uh, throughout. Um, it is not a story of uh, diplomacy. And it's not a story of politics. I mean, it's even a scene in the movie where Odysseus tells Achilles, you know, don't you worry about the politics. It's kind of like you're telling your soldiers, don't you worry. The, the, the politics are underhand. All you've got to do is fight. Um and Achilles has been sold this his entire life, that he doesn't have to do anything but fight. Um, there are no consequences for him beyond the killing. And that's a very a very Greek way of looking at it. And the movie really, I don't think Brad Pitt is the best Achilles, but I think Achilles is the best character because he has, not not just as an arc, he has, he has a role, he has a meaning in the context uh, of the film. Um, Whereas you look at so many other adaptations of the Iliad, Hector is clearly the, I mean, Homer likes Hector more than he likes Achilles, I think. Um, and Hector is generally seen as, you know, the more human, the more modern. He's a guy defending his homeland. He's got a wife that he loves. And when you compare Banna's Hector to Pitt's Achilles, I think Peterson really gets at what drives Achilles. Because uh, that's a harder thing to explain to a modern audience than defending your homeland. Everybody gets that. But trying to explain... I fight because this is my job to fight and not in a professional way. It's not about professionalism. It's not about I'm getting paid. I'm recruited. I'm fighting for my country. He's not fighting for his country. He's fighting for everlasting fame, um, which he gets across quite well, even though it's such a foreign, foreign concept to a modern audience. Yeah, I think the movie effectively, it, it gets you to buy into this notion that this is, a movie full of characters, particularly on the Greek side, of 
people who do think in that sort of they were conscious that they're stepping onto the stage of history and myth and they have a chance to endure there and this is the only way one endures in this world so uh agamemnon's approach yes he has this like bottomless lust for power but it's also clearly like he has nothing to do with that power there's no there's no agamemnon vision that's laid out maybe the closest we get to it is when he's ranting about achilles uh to nestor right when when nestor's like you can't do this war without achilles it's not gonna work and achilles and agamemnon uh a terrific, uh, terrifically hammy Brian Cox uh, goes off and talks about how he's a man who fights for no flag. And it sort of, it does gesture at this direction of Agamemnon is sort of a proto-nationalist at this point, which I think is in keeping in some ways with, the Iliad's an odd an odd legend, right? Because it, Because it is a national myth about national disunity, about the figment of nationalism. The yeah. Greeks don't like each other. They have nothing in common. And they only go along with Agamemnon because he's powerful, because he's a bully, uh, because he can compel this kind of obedience. But this notion that uh, it's all the Greeks versus all the Trojans, it, it very much is a fractious alliance. The the notion of Greece writ large going to war with anyone is pretty laughable. And the yeah. events that unfold across the story kind of hammer that home. This is not one people. Uh, it is sort of a, a fractious and feuding family. Agamemnon maybe has a vision of himself being the person to unify that. But when it comes to what is the object of all this power, it all seems like in his own way, he's competing with Achilles. He's playing the same game. Agamemnon sees the chance for immortality as being the person to assemble an empire that endures beyond your death, uh, an, an empire that people will remember, and the soldiers will be forgotten. And Achilles is going about it in much more the heroic tradition of, uh, I will not be, I, I will, not, I will not just be a historical figure the way Agamemnon is pursuing. I yeah. will be a hero. I will be a a a, a living myth. Uh, and I, I think the movie gets like by by the point you're like halfway through this movie. You kind of not necessarily buy into the worldview because part of the movie's trick is it's going to make you question this, right? Like Achilles, by the time he gets what he wants, no longer wants it. Uh, that's sort of his his tragic fate is that, uh, you know, in Hector, he finds the opponent that will guarantee his immortality. Without Hector, there probably is no myth of Achilles, but by the time he achieves that, he realizes that he's a man in the service of a bankrupt cause. Uh, but it does do a good job in getting us to that moment of helping us understand why these characters are doing what they do, right? Because I think this is a, you know, you've probably seen more of these than I have, but I think it is a trick in a lot of Sword and Sandals movies where they can be so... Uh, maybe self-conscious is the wrong word but they don't they don't do a great job of establishing why people would make these choices necessarily sometimes sword and sandals movies feel like all the characters know that all every character begins from the assumption that Look, this is a movie where Jason and the Argonauts have to find some skeletons. That's the that's the that's the yeah. point of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I I I love uh, certain things. I love the old Italian peplums, which are just 
very, very bad. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a certain staginess to them. And I mean, this is just a few, I mean, this comes out, this starts production in like 2003 or so, uh, maybe, well, maybe it comes out in 2004, it starts production in like 2000, late 2002, 2003. I mean, Gladiator is fresh in everybody's mind. Right, True. Gladiator. Gladiator is going to, you know, revive the sword and shadow. When you get like a bunch of these historical type things, like right after Gladiator comes out, and shows you can make a bad movie that people like and give Oscars to. Um, I do not like Gladiator at all. Um, but it, Troy does Troy does quite well in its year, but it doesn't. It doesn't remember the same way. But it has to be measured up to that. This is what we're trying to do. We have to make these people feel, give them like personal humanity, um, which is, I mean, both in the Iliad and in Troy, Achilles is there for his own fame uh, and his own honor. And he withdraws from the war for his own honor. He says, look, I'm not going to be, you know, cuckolded by my general if he takes my slave. But he goes back in because now it's personal. It has nothing to do with his honor. It has to do with someone he loves being taken from him. Um, so even his very reason, it gets kind of it kind of moves into the, into the, the, the Hector position. You know, you've you've come onto my turf. You've taken my love, Mike. He's you know cousin in uh, in Troy, but uh, in the legend he's more. Uh, so we have. So you see right then Achilles is breaking down what the reasons to fight are. I mean, it's, yes, he will fight on behalf of other people, not just his own fame and legend, but it has to be somebody else. And then King Priam comes and does this whole one of the great moments in the Iliad. And I think a really good moment in the movie. You know, Peter O'Toole, I think it's one of Peter O'Toole's last performances um, and does a really good job with the ransom of Hector's body, just explaining, you know, it's more important, not just for you, but for us, that you give me my son back instead of you just dragging the body around all the time. Um, it's a great, like, for a lot of that movie, it, it feels like Peter O'Toole is just, he's there to be Peter O'Toole, right? He's a prestige name attached to the, the, the film. The, the, this is very late Peter O'Toole. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he's being lazier, a lot lazier than Alec Guinness was in Star Wars. But in that final scene with um with Achilles, he does bring the goods, uh, right, when he tries to make him understand like what he has lost, like what it, like what it means to lose a son, because Achilles isn't gonna know that. Um and he he tries to bring across this idea of like everyone you kill is a person that yeah. matters to other people the same way Patroclus mattered to you. And it's this weird like it the scene works very, very well where like sudden like suddenly it does land for Achilles the degree to which um you know, maybe he is the villain of the story in some ways, or at least uh he's somebody who now like he no longer wants to be doing this, right? Like when, when he goes out there and weeps over Hector, it's a great moment. Uh, in in the film, uh, to to sort of realize like like how completely his worldview has been transformed uh, over the course of this picture, um, and yeah, we do get there through uh, Peter O'Toole sort of suiting up for for one scene where he's really going to earn that paycheck, um, and and he does, uh, 
What do you make of Sean Bean's Odysseus? I mean, it's one of these things where Troy is the kind of movie where it's best when it's on Achilles. And everything that's away from him is generally, you know, kind of iffy. And that includes Odysseus, even though I think Sean Bean would make a very good Odysseus in the Odyssey. Uh, it's not quite clear where he what he's doing in this movie. He's, you know, an advisor to Agamemnon. He's the shady guy who has the, oh, eureka moment where he sees a guy carving a horse and says, hmm, yes, let's put all of our guys in a horse. It's, that's not how these things work, but that's how movie breakthroughs happen. Um, you just see the thing and it makes you have the genius idea. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of, we don't really get a sense for who Odysseus is besides the advisor to Agamemnon. He's the guy who's trying to, he's a friend of Achilles. He's not as close to the establishment as Nestor is. Uh, he, think, he believes everyone, Achilles and Agamemnon should like, just get the war over with sort of thing. Um, but you don't get a sense for the literary character who was the schemer, the plotter, uh, the one who was always trying to get an edge over uh, the opponent. I mean, the Iliad has a great, there's uh, a famous scene where he and, is it Diomedes or Idomeneus? I think it's Diomedes, you know, do a scouting mission up to the wall. They're trying to figure out the weaknesses of the city and they capture a Trojan spy and have to kill him. And, you know, it's a great, you know, stealth mission. Um, which neither Troy the movie nor Troy the game have enough of. So we have, so we don't, we don't get that because the movie's not about that. It's about the wrath of Achilles. Even though it wants to take us all the way through to the Trojan horse and start with the abduction of Helen, this movie is, you know, I mean, Homer gets a co-writing credit, I think. I mean, this is the with wrath Benioff. of Achilles. Yes, David yeah. Benioff and Homer. David Benioff and Homer, which is just the worst dope. Uh, so he, it, it, this movie is the wrath of Achilles, uh, which is understandable. It's you know the story everyone knows. You know, Achilles loses his mind and uh, kills the greatest warrior on the other side of the war. Um, I was watching um, Troy Fall of a City alongside this, uh, which is on Netflix, and it has, uh, of course, it has an Odysseus as well. And there, the Odysseus is clearly a schemer. Because it goes from the very, it goes through a lot of the war, and it includes the scene, which isn't in the Iliad, where Odysseus feigns madness to avoid going to Troy, where he pretends he's crazy and he's exposed. Says, "Oh, okay, you're not really crazy, so you have to follow your oath. You got to come with us to Troy." And his entire goal is to end the war fast. So he comes up with, so he sends a spy into Troy. He has this whole espionage team. And it's a turning point where, you know, the Myrmidons have withdrawn from the war. He arranges for the murder of a Myrmidon, blames it on the Trojans for violating a truce. And that gets Achilles back into the war. Just because he knows they can't win the war without him. So he does this to get the war over with. Uh, in this story, the Trojan horse isn't just filled with soldiers, it's filled with grain, because that's what they need. So you fill it with grain, let them see the grain leaking out, and they'll drag that into the city. Then you have a few soldiers open up the gate. So it's all of this. So you have an Odysseus who's really thinking ahead. Sean Bean is a good actor. I really like him, but I just don't think his character's given enough to do. 
No, I was watching it. He's very much what if Richard Sharp uh, were Odysseus, right? Like, he's just kind of there in the background. He's like, well, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, so I'll figure out how to storm the city. Um, and mostly he's there to sort of be a counterpoint to Achilles. Uh, they do have one good scene together where Achilles is like, why do you serve this guy? Which is a question the audience is asking by this point as well. Like, why? Agamemnon is visibly incompetent. Um, Like, why is anyone doing this? And Odysseus's response, which is that, like, because I'm scared. Like, Agamemnon scares him. And... Achilles doesn't understand how that motivates people and doesn't understand it doesn't understand the politics that, that happen around him because he doesn't know fear. And Odysseus is there to sort of be the, you know, this is somebody who could be more like Achilles, but is recognizably somebody who, like, has self-interest and insecurities and doubts uh, that, that more of us uh, experience as well. And it would have been cool to see a version of the movie that engages a bit more with that. Uh well, the, Troy, you the mentioned whole, you talked about the, the wrath of Achilles. Yeah. Can I talk about some great fucking wrath in this movie, though? Yes. Let sure, us talk about the wrath of Menelaus. Uh, Brendan Gleeson, and it occurred to me, Orlando Bloom, Brendan Gleeson, the two uh, common threads between these movies. Oh, and God, right. Brendan Gleeson is just in beast mode for both films. Yeah. Uh, but I think the... I think... The way he plays Menelaus as just a bluff, in a lot of ways weak bully, um, is really is really effective. Like the scene where the scene where he finally gets his wish to get that challenge with with Paris, and on the on the Trojan side, uh, the entire thing is Paris keeps trying to talk himself up into saying i can end this war i can get us out of this by by fighting in single combat and he just can't he's not wired that way and he's gonna get he's gonna get smoked but he finally thinks he's gonna do it he goes out there uh where the armies are drawn up and he faces down menelaus and says well let's let's you and me do this right here and the movie sort of plays a the, the movie lets the sequence off the hook a little bit because it lets us hear the exchange between agamemnon and uh menelaus where they agree that no matter the outcome of this fight, they're still going to sack Troy. They're still going to sub subjugate the city. And so we know that when Paris does what he does, it doesn't actually like doom Troy, right? Like the movie lets Paris off the hook for actually getting the city obliterated. But I do love uh, their fight as Menelaus has come all this way to sort of reclaim his manhood uh, in a satisfying single combat. And he whoops up on Paris so bad that it's clear he's not even a good opponent. But then Paris scrambles away and Hector calls time on the fight. And the way Brendan Gleeson plays Menelaus as this, you know, whinging, aging jock and being like, this isn't fair. This isn't. This isn't what I was promised. Uh, and yeah. just his disbelief uh, that he would not. That it would not go that way. Uh, right. I love that scene. I, I love the way the the players all handle it. Right. With Orlando Bloom scrabbling, like literally grabbing onto Hector's feet, uh, begging to be protected, and uh, Menelaus is just wheedling violence uh it's an like it's 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 perfect i think 
Yeah, I mean, Menelaus is, you know, one of the interesting characters uh, of Greek myth and of this movie and of pretty much every uh, good or passable uh, interpretation of Troy because you have to make the Troy story because you have to make him seem respectable but clearly weaker than Agamemnon but also less attractive than Paris in a way. And the problem with a lot of these things is, especially as a bishop with Troy and with Fall of the City, is, I mean, at least Orlando Bloom's handsome. He's a good-looking guy. But do you run away with him because of that? Uh, is he attractive enough for someone to run away with? Maybe. Uh, certainly better than Fall of the City, where he didn't understand that at all. So you can, I, I can understand why someone like Menelaus would be completely, you know, emasculated by the idea of this, you know, young prince swoops in, uh, takes his beautiful uh, wife away, and he does his only. I mean, it's like a, a, it's like the, what we said about Achilles. The best way for him to demonstrate his virility and his heroicness is to defeat Paris by himself. For him to, you know, claim the personal victory. Yeah, Agamemnon's going to raise the city anyway, no matter what happens. Um, but this is very important for Menelaus to do this. He can't just sit back and have his brother win the war for him. Uh, there's a sense throughout that he just wants to get in there. He wants to be a part of this and not just be the cause worth fighting for. Uh, it, it, it's a great battle scene, and uh, there's something like it in the Iliad, in the shocking you know, murder uh, uh, by Hector, who then goes off to kill Ajax, just kill everybody, who just goes on a killing streak. Uh is just it's it, it's it's a new side of Hector we see in the movie because Hector's played is just so honorable the entire way through, and here Hector's the one who kind of breaks the truth. He kind of breaks the deal. Now we know because uh, we're the audience. We know Agamemnon was going to break the deal anyway. We know that the city was doomed. Um, but Hector's the one who, in public, breaks the rules to save his brother. His pathetic, squirrely, cowering brother who isn't, you know, manly Greek enough to stand up to getting his head beaten in by this beast of a man. And he does. Menelaus is scary, right? Like, Brendan Gleeson oh, yeah. is in full, like, uh, just the beast oh, is yeah. unleashed. It's great. Yeah, it is just an outstanding uh, thing. And, it, it, and you, I think if you think about this duel, and it takes you back to the opening duel. Between Achilles and um, Beastman, I mean, he has a name, but I forget what it is. And Achilles wins it easily. But if Beastman had beaten Achilles, it lets you know Agamemnon was going to fight that war anyway. Yeah, Agamemnon was going to kill all those Thessalians no matter what. He had the most people. He didn't care who he was going to kill. He had an out because he's got the best soldier in the world on his side. But if Achilles had fallen down that day or Achilles didn't show up and he had to shove, you know, Ajax or Odysseus or Iphigenia into battle, uh, it didn't matter because he was going to get what he wanted no matter what. So there's this idea of what the rules, what the rule, there's the heroic rules and Agamemnon is beyond heroic rules. He's beyond the age of heroes. Yeah, and is consciously trying to end it. Yeah. Uh, is is consciously and I think we were talking about this the other day. Uh maybe we can get into this theme right now. 
you like you you said that Agamemnon is a modern figure in this movie. He's portrayed yeah. as modernity uh, personified, and therefore he has to be an asshole and he has to be punished. Uh, you want to dig into this motif a, a little bit because because I, I think you're well, right, but I want to I want to hear more about it, it. it. It's a very common theme uh, through movies of the 2000s, especially period pieces, where There's a golden age, and it's when things were like kind of good. It's not great that Achilles goes around killing people, but there's an ability to it. There's an honor to it. There's a respectability to it. It's you know he's in your face. You know what he's there for. Um, whereas the guy trying to build the empire to build civilization uh, is kind of turning his back on the old ways, and you can only turn your back on the old ways if you're a dishonest person. If you're somebody who isn't comfortable with the old ways, it didn't work for you. So you so you find it's this cheat code, and his cheat code is building an empire. Uh, be strong enough to make other people do your work for you, um, because you can't do it in the battlefield. So you do it through wealth, you do it through trickery, you do it through threats, like to all the vassal kingdoms, like Odysseus's Ithaca. Um, and though Agamemnon is the future, the future is empires and mass armies um, because heroes can't take cities. You don't get a sack of Troy with just Achilles. He can't do it by himself. Um, so just as walls are a sign of civilization, a walled city is like the ultimate sign of civilization, to take it down, you can't You do the Age of Heroes. The Age of Heroes can't stop. Uh, even if the people inside still think they're heroes. It can only be done by the force of civilization and modernity. So you think of something like, I mean, to the case of mine was the, the, the Last Samurai, uh, Tom Cruise movie, and in some ways a white savior movie, in some ways not, um, where Tom Cruise is an American military advisor in Meiji, Japan, you know, teaching all of these Japanese people, Japanese government people, how to use Gatling guns and modern military equipment Mean, and that means hunting down the last of the honorable people, the samurai, the people who fight for honor, fight for their lord, don't fight for something as nebulous as nationalism or empire, money, money professionalism. Um, I mean, it's a total rewriting of what samurais ever were, uh, especially in the 19th century, by which time most samurais were been, had been bureaucrats since the Tokugawa era. But we have this idea that modernity has to go forward. And we see that at the end of Last Samurai, where you know, Tom Cruise is brought forward and he's kind of forgiven and patted the hips. Yeah, but that was an honorable samurai guy. And I kind of wish I was with him. Um, this is a very common theme throughout the 2000s, which is, it's a common theme throughout, throughout movies and throughout literature in general. The idea, this, this Walden idea and Rousseauian idea of there's a past that was better and that we have to, we're going to move beyond that. And it's kind of inevitable. History marches forward, but we lose something. And the people who drag us forward, yeah, they might look like heroes in your history book, but really, really they're kind of villains because they don't appreciate what we have. Uh, God, some are saying you see in, the Harry, in Harry Potter how muggles, the guy, people who invented the automobile, electricity, and atom bombs are seen as, as idiots because they can't, you know, say a Latin spell. Um, you know, you know modern, modern, civil, modern civilization, those are just the idiots who invented science. I've got a wand and things are better here, even after we evaporate my poop. You know, there's all of these things. Um, 
it's, it's a common theme throughout literature. And I think it's very clear in Troy that Agamemnon is, I mean, he says, you know, the, the people like Achilles are holding him back, that people like Achilles are preventing his imperial project because he needs them because he still doesn't have, he needs people like him who are willing to fight and fight well just for the glory of it. Because at this point, that's how kind of armies are. But he just hates the fact he has to depend on him. And he'll be happier when he can just have vassal kings like Odysseus to boss around. I want to talk a, a little bit about uh, what there is for for women to do in this film. Uh, I think probably the most interesting character ends up being Helen, uh, which is surprising because it's not an auspicious beginning, uh, no. right? At the at the beginning of the film, uh, basically, she is her motivation is she's kind of a neglected wife, and Orlando Bloom is very hot and very there. And kind of, uh, you know, almost not not quite on a whim because there's an element of desperation. Like she clearly, uh, there's there's an aspect of this where Menelaus is, if not like a violent husband, clearly has capacity for violence and is kind of a brutish figure. And she's just desperate to get out. Uh, but one of the things that does come through in this in this film a little bit is the degree to which a lot of the male characters are swept up in this ego-driven where will I st where where will where will my name stand uh when all of this is recalled someday when all of this becomes memory uh and one of the things that that Helen is consistently doing as she talks to she has uh, I think probably the most dynamic scenes uh, with Hector and with Paris as she begins to like try to talk both of them through Paris in particular the degree to which she does not care about the ideals a lot of these dudes are trying to uphold and embody right Paris's entire thing where he's like I have to go fight uh, Menelaus I, you know, I, I can settle this in single combat. And she's very frank about like, he'll just kill you. He'll just kill you. Kill you. Like, yeah. I love you, but you are not, you're not a warrior. That's not, that's not you. And you don't have to be, uh, for, for me to be with you. Uh, and after he sort of shames himself, right. And he feels like he's completely let down the side, uh, by, by hiding, uh, behind Hector's skirts you know again she makes this point of menelaus was one of the best warriors of his of his time and place and she was miserable um yeah. and i i think it's one of the things that i do appreciate about what her character is allowed to do is be a person who is outside the narrative that a lot of these guys are caught up in mm -hmm. right isn't caught up in this in the conception of self uh that they are and i think that's that's more than helen is often given uh space to do in tellings of the story right like she is to, in a very very literal sense like a completely objectified uh character in a lot of this here she is somebody who is constantly asking why did i do this what obligation do i have to these people what are they undertaking on my behalf? She is, you know, from the minute she flees, basically, trying to figure out how she can 
get through this while causing the least harm. Yeah, I mean, another way, in many ways, she is the she is the most modern person in the film. She is the one who abandons an arranged marriage for love, lust, loins, uh, what have you. Um, it's 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 very risky and it's a stupid decision and it brings a, a doom on everyone. But throughout, she's questioning why are we even bothering her? Why why does Menelaus want to fight for a wife who doesn't want him anymore? Why is Paris so determined to get himself killed? Um, uh, she's with Hector's wife, Andromache. Andromache is kind of the big. She's the she's the the large female character in the Iliad. She is you know Hector's wife. She's the the mourning mother of uh, women of Troy. Uh, the Sophocles play. She is Sophocles or Euripides. I think Euripides. I think Euripides. Uh, She's one of the great uh, figures of the Trojan myth. And Helen, through all of this, is, she, I mean, Helen's not a mother. Helen is not one of the Trojans. I mean, there's, she's there and she was welcomed, and but she's she's kind of a prize, but also a captive. Um, and she just wants to get out of there. She want, if, if she could just run away and go someplace else, that would be great. But I think she also knows that as long as Menelaus is alive, he's not going to stop. He's somebody who's going to be carrying this on, and this is why Paris is in danger. There's, nothing's going to stop him from restoring his wounded pride. Um, and you know, at the end of Troy, Helen uh, goes through the secret passage with uh, Andromache and Aeneas, and I guess goes help to found Rome uh, while Paris is left behind dying. But we have this. You well, know, Paris goes with her, right? I think it's implied. So Paris takes Briseis and exits stage right, basically. Yeah. So, but our assumption He's, is he got her out of there and probably okay. fled himself. Joined, joined up. So we have them all joining with the young Aeneas and probably founding Rome through a secret passage. Uh, the audience is supposed to know who Aeneas is, I guess. His name is mentioned once. It's um, an Easter egg. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but she is, the, she is. I mean, Diane Kruger does a pretty decent job with what is kind of a thankless uh, role. Um, if she was given more to do, it might be interesting. I'm like, I don't want to compare it too much to Fall of the City. But there, Helen is a really active and complicated character who mistakenly betrays the Trojans and then spends half the series trying to cover up for her problem and just makes things worse, covering up for her her mistaken treachery. It's just a very, very sad thing all the way through. But she does end up being forced to go home uh, with Menelaus. Uh, just as happened historically. So we have this... I mean, it's an interesting uh, situation. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about the military stuff with this? We, we were supposed to be talking about sieges, right? Well, yeah. So uh, actually, that's, here's a question for you. Yeah. To what degree is Troy ever effectively put under siege? In, in the legend... Right? Like, yeah. how serious is the Greek effort at besieging Troy? Because when the Iliad opens, it seems like it either hasn't been going well or it hasn't been serious. There's there's that implication that the Greeks also know the prophecy and they know that basically yeah. uh, year 10 of the war is when everything goes down. Uh, because the snake did the thing, uh, you know, back in Greece yeah. before when they're taking the auspices uh, yeah. for this for this war. So you could say like the the Greeks like know it isn't go time uh, until year ten, 
But I, I think the implication that I've always sort of had is that they're over there fighting for 10 years. Like, the, if they could have gotten Troy to concede before 10 years were up, they probably would have tried. But by year 10, they become kind of just a uh, almost feral raiding force uh, on the on the coast of Turkey. It's, as it's, they, it's very as they, Pardon? It's very, hard, it's very hard to tell from the Odyssey, isn't it? Be, or the Iliad. Because there's a lot of... It's a lot of the Trojan War history, which is outside of the Iliad. The Iliad's just, you know, a few months uh, in year 10. So we have a lot of other stories about the Trojan War. But not a lot of other stories, what happens to the Greeks after they, we have them arriving, and we have them landing, and the Podalarius uh, is the first one killed. And then silence for like decades. I mentioned a few raids, but there aren't a lot of stories about. And then in year five of the siege of Troy, and those stories don't exist. And right, like basically immediately after Achilles uh, says, "I'm I'm out. Uh, I'm yeah. just gonna I'm gonna sit here on the beach and watch you, uh, you know, get wrecked." The Greeks form up for a like fully dressed assault on yeah. Troy and it's clear in the it's clear in the book uh this is not a normal like this isn't round 20 for the yeah. Trojans and the Greeks right like this is an unusual battle uh as they fight in the fields outside outside Troy so it's it's kind of a weird thing because i think yes we do imagine like this long bitter ten, siege of Troy but and after Achilles dies, we, have, we know a lot about what happens after Achilles dies. We have like the whole rest of the war. You know, the Ethiopians show up and the Amazons show up. And they get Achilles' son to come, even though he's probably like 12 years old. Uh, they have all of these sort of what happens after Achilles dies, but not a whole lot of happens before the Iliad. So, yeah, there's a sense that what's happening in the Iliad, that giant siege, uh, battle of the ships, all of this is kind of unusual because there's nothing... No great heroes are mentioned as having died beforehand, right? They don't have uh, whatever the catalog of the ships. So all these boats came over with 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 Idomeneus, and he died in year three. No, everyone's all the captains are still there in year ten. So, yeah, is this really a much of a siege, or is it? It's certainly not a very close siege, um, and in the movie, it's not either. Really, I mean, you you can't have ten years of a movie. Um, but there's a sense that it's a lot of raiding, um, a few assaults here and there, but there's no attempt at encirclement, no attempt at starvation, uh, no risky breakouts, really, no attempts to rush for allies that you get in other siege uh, films. Um, it's They're camped at the beach. I mean, just go out the back door, guys. I mean, I mean they're up there. Just sneak out. It is a um yeah it's the the movie depicts it as what the entire thing basically unfolds over the course of less than a month yeah uh the Greeks show up and remember there's a twelve day time skip uh to cover the funeral games for Hector and then the assault happens like the next night so yeah uh it ends up being it it ends up being a movie not really about a siege. Uh, so much as a really disastrous, um, almost almost a Gallipoli-esque uh, operation, right? Like the Greeks can't get off the beach. Um, 
they you know their one attempt at at you know advancing on the walls of troy uh gets their forces shattered in the first uh in, in the second major battle of yep. the film and then the night raid uh by the trojans basically you know shatters the greeks further but also commits the uh ghastly error of killing patroclus but yeah this is not a movie where anyone ever really has a plan for how they're going to take troy uh it is simply there's no real siege it's just that uh odysseus realizes i better do something because agamemnon is okay getting all of us killed uh storming the walls yeah it is really um in in many ways it is kind of in line with what we know but in the iliad now, i don't know a whole lot about bronze age uh city taking uh or even if this is bronze age it's kind of heroic age weirdo uh history time but let's say arguably it's uh bronze age or early iron age uh we have it's certainly a time when cities did fall because the sumerians were taking cities like way back uh in the third millennium uh but it's not a time when walls like the legendary walls of troy these are like big ass things where these are easily taken down you know siege equipment is very sparse uh throughout history most sieges have ended through through through, through treachery uh than anything else so it's kind of you know makes sense that it was a ruse that brings down troy it's very much in line with how things uh work actually but there really isn't any attempt to really storm the walls as much as storm the trojans and you know, even the Iliad, the whole thing is, oh, we'll, we'll never get past those big walls. We'll never get past the the sky and gate. You know, these things are in our way. Um, that's kind of seen as the the borderland between the Greeks. And the Greeks can dominate the field, but if they can't get through the sky and gate, uh, there's no point. Um, but they keep they do the assault anyway, and uh, when Achilles pulls out, even more of them get killed. And really, it comes down to Hector's night assault, kind of forcing them, forcing the matter, uh, and forcing Odysseus into his scheme of the gate that they are they are sitting ducks. The longer they are there, um, they can't just count on Achilles constantly because as long as they're in their walls, no one can get there. Um, it is really, it, it it the Trojan siege. I mean, it's a famous siege, but we don't think much of it as being a siege so much as guys camped outside the walls yeah which i mean to a degree that's the ancient world for you uh in in some ways like the um you know if you if a city had decent food reserves and god help you if it still had like access to fresh water or even a trade route not a lot you can do um you know, in in that in that time and place, uh, oh, the, the Alexander's siege of Tyre went on forever. Demetrius couldn't take Rhodes, so they built a colossus to honor the victory. Uh, Demetrius Polyarchates, Dem- D- D- Demetrius the besieger, and some people think that nickname was given ironically because he failed to take Rhodes. Uh, Syracuse, the Athenians try a lot of things, but we we know that because it turned into such a shit show, right? Yeah. The, the the Romans have to be pretty much you have to be they have to require betrayal to get into Syracuse, even though they dominate the sea lanes. So, I mean, and then you go even further back, and and 
we're talking about Alexander. I mean, that's when you have catapults. Catapults are invented at least then. You don't have catapults. You don't have siege towers back in the Achilles days, back in the heroic age. Right. Um, cities, you have good ladders. You might have battering ramps. You probably have very, probably, have, yeah, you probably have bronze headed, headed rams at the very most. Um, I think the, so a siege the, is, so a siege, the sieges do happen and cities are taken, but they are generally taken through, yeah, betrayal or starvation. Neither of which is particularly dynamic. And yeah, yeah and I, I think the, the thing that I do kind of look for sometimes from a I'm going to draw a distinction that may not be real, but there's the um, there's there's sieges, there's, there's sort of siege stories. And then there's like alamo slash like last stand uh stories they're two kind of different things but i think the the thing you kind of expect to see both of them is there's this notion of uh there should be a a notion of move and counter move right where everyone knows the the vulnerabilities of the location and everyone like begins trying to figure out how do we you know overcome it how do we get around it uh i think we'll talk about this movie at some point someday uh but like a movie that does this really well uh, in a very like snappy bit of exposition is Last of the Mohicans, where Colonel Monroe basic, basically explains 18th century siege warfare uh, in 30 seconds or less, uh, yeah. right? That, you know, there's heavy siege artillery whose job it is to suppress uh, the bastions of the fort. And while that is happening... You have trench lines moving forward into mortar range where you can bring in the sort of wall shattering, uh, high explosives, uh, high trajectory uh, rounds that will basically like finally shatter a fort. And that's the game. It basically unfolds according to a math equation. Uh, you know, they can dig X yards of trench. And this is kind of this, you know, these are old arts of siege warfare, right? Like, um, yeah. you know, circumvallation walls uh, to lay out a siege are also a similar sort of dynamic, right? The The race to basically build a fort around the fort. Uh, that will enable you to to begin a a full proper siege. Oh, and, and then you have building a wall around the wall that they're building around you. Double circumvallation. See, this is the movie I want. I want a movie that is literally about just the absurdity so, of the, 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 the only battle that, that, that Pompey defeated Caesar in the battle. The battle of Dyrrhachium was a battle of dueling circumvallations. I think it would be so much fun to like see a movie sort of try to bring that to life uh right where the drama is watching uh siege siege works basically crawl toward it, it, each it other. is it is such a fun battle because one of their they're fighting there's this pitched battle towards the end and it's at night and one of caesar's units is kind of lost so they figure okay we'll find our way back to the battle by following the wall but they followed the wrong wall and they followed it too far because both of the walls are like miles and miles long at this point. So they end up like an hour away from where the action is when they're needed and Caesar's army gets kind of crushed. That is that is a fun battle. But, but, um, but Pompey can't follow it up, which leads to, you know, Caesar's quip. <laughs> they would have won that day if they, if they were led by such a loser. Caesar was kind of a jerk. Kind of a jerk, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, kind of jerks, let's talk. Let's talk about the Last Kingdom. Kingdom um, of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, sorry, yeah, not the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, the Last yes. Kingdom is a very fun uh, 
Bernard Cornwell, very ridiculous uh, Viking porn uh, uh, TV show. How is anyway, it? Pardon? How is it? Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Should I watch it? Um, how, do you, like, how familiar are you with the works of Bernard Cornwell? Not very. Okay. Uh, so the guy has some tics, uh, one of which is that basically to serve the needs of a long running series about a plucky star, uh, a, a plucky hero, uh, who's clever, but always sort of, uh, never able to stop being a badass and never able to stop hustling. Uh, the guy has to be kind of a dumbass. And okay. so all the stories revolve around characters who are kind of like military savants, but extremely vain and extremely horny uh, and extremely self-defeating. And so you oh, will so see those spirals. So, so it's good. It's kind of if Sharp was just bad at things. Yeah. Yeah. Like That's arguably right. Sharp, like Sharp's good at the fighting. All Cornwall's yeah. characters are good at the fighting. Okay. Sharp's bad at holding on to any of the things he wins with yeah, the fighting. Sharp is his only stuff that I have any familiar with. That's just a TV series, not the books. But let's go back to Kino of Heaven. Uh, this is about the uh, fall of Jerusalem. Yep. Uh, the siege of Jerusalem uh, by Ibele de... What's his name? So, Ibele defended de... by Balian, you mean? Yeah, Balian. Yeah. Well, no, Balian, well, not... Yeah, uh... It's, um, we have this whole complicated situation, uh, with, uh, we have, uh, Orlando Bloom as he plays a blacksmith bastard son, I guess, this, so of a crusader. It, uh, you know, let's just get into it because this is okay. stuff in the theatrical cut. It was never clear to me. Like basically, that's all I would know of it, right? Yeah. Was this uh, the movie opens with Liam Neeson showing up to a small town in France and being like, "Hey, sad blacksmith, you're my son. Let's go to the Holy Land." And that's kind of it. Then, yeah. then we're just kind of off to the races, and it's not really clear like who is this dude. Uh, so the director's cut completely recasts how this film is framed yeah, uh, right at the who, beginning. Yeah, who learned Bailey out of Evelyn was, why he's so willing to go along with this guy. We learned that he's uh, he was a former military engineer, which was important later on. That's a very important fact, but it made things a lot more, made a lot more sense later on. Uh, his wife committed suicide, so you know, his brother is a parson. You see him killing the priest in the original, the theatrical cut, but don't realize it's also his brother until the director's cut. That's kind of important because this means his uh, possible arrest is kind of a big deal, as well as the sin he needs to get rid of by going to Jerusalem is so huge. Um, so we have Balian of Imelin, who was historically a crusader noble from a minor uh, French family. In this movie is a Bastard son, I guess, of minor French nobility, but he doesn't know it. And his father was kind of a nobody knight who made his name in the Holy Land, and so was given uh, the town of Ibelin, uh, which is somewhere near Jaffa, and he becomes a loyal servant to Baldwin of Jerusalem. And Bellion has to defend what's left of the of the king of Jerusalem from Saladin and evil Templars. Well, so this is right out of the gate. 
uh, how do you make this a sympathetic cause? And you do it by having Baldwin be once again a secular humanist uh, yeah. who, yes, the Crusaders stormed Jerusalem and slaughtered uh, Muslims right and left when they did it. But all of that is in the past. Baldwin leads an enlightened kingdom of heaven where uh, Christian and Muslim and Jew alike all share the Holy Land and all live together in a community. And never mind like that all the power in this community seems to be largely held by the Crusader government. Uh, yeah, like there's some powerful, like some rich Muslim traders, but like the the deal that is being sort of held up as the ideal in this movie is everyone should probably just shut up and let the enlightened philosopher king uh, just do his philosopher king thing, and then everyone will be happy. Um, he's he's figured it all out, and the tragedy is that Baldwin is sick. He's a leper. Um, great costume design um yeah. just a fantastic like an iron mask uh, it's edward norton right yeah um edward norton uh turning in a, a really memorable performance as this character uh but yeah so baldwin is not long for this world uh he is in his 20s and is rapidly declining uh from leprosy and he has uh no ready error uh, to to take over instead he has uh he is surrounded by ambitious french nobles the evil templars led by thank god a truly unhinged brendan gleason and on the other side he has a friendly rival in uh saladin who is biding his time uh to retake the holy land um, but has assembled a coalition of Egyptians and Arabs uh, to sort of undo the verdict of the uh, First Crusade. The sense is in this film that Saladin is waiting for Baldwin to die, that he respects Baldwin so much that he will you know, wait for him to pass and then he will attack Jerusalem. His own imams are criticizing him, saying, why is he after Jerusalem? You have the army now. And he's like, you know, if you say that I'm the right hand of God, then... Whenever I say is the right time to go, is God saying it's the right time to go? Even even Saladin is in many ways a very practical, uh, pragmatic man until his hand is forced by Brendan Gleeson, who plays a scenery chewing uh, Reynald, who was you know even historically most of the stories about Reynald were written by his enemies. Historically, great a asshole. Uh, who did attack caravans uh, and the like, but was also kind of a crusader. It was a long time crusader, long time in the in the Holy Land. And 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 Guido Lusignan, who's the head of the Templars, uh, and he's uh, Orlando Bloom's great rival at court. And you know, Saladin is you know he's this is one of the one of the consistent legacies uh, throughout uh, Crusades media is that. Even if it's an anti-Muslim film, Saladin is generally portrayed as a grand hero or great knight of some kind. And he's being undermined or betrayed uh, by other Muslims. Now, this is not an anti-Muslim movie. This is very much a peace is good, crusades are stupid uh, kind of film. But Saladin as the great 
noble courtier is very much a trope in in play here. Uh, Salim is portrayed as a great general, and yet he ends up executing you know the villain. But he's also some of the uh, kings don't kill kings sort of thing. He has his own rules uh, that he abides by. He's portrayed as this fierce, powerful force of military nature. But he's kind of the good guy, even though he's attacking the hero of the movie at the end. He's not a villain. He's not an antagonist really in any way at all. Uh, so the siege comes at the end and you kind of get, you know, um, the whole point of the film, which is, what are you guys even fighting for? And what are they fighting for? Because it seems, this is, I think, if there's yep. a weakness in the film, uh, even in this director's cut, yep. it is that the climactic fight is a fight for terms that Saladin, as we have seen him, seems like a character he would have readily, like, he seems like he would have readily granted the terms they're yep. fighting for. Yeah, and this is a this is the terms are not harsh. They're very much they're very simple terms. Sal doesn't lose anything by it, um, and I'm not quite sure what he what. The, so the whole big siege at the end, which is you know it's a classic medieval siege on film. We've got you've got trebuchets, you've got boiling oil, you've got ladders. You've got engineers doing calculations. You've got you know, raiders. You've got the works of your Hollywood siege movie. Um, between two characters who have met once before, seem to like each other. Uh, Bailan of Ibelin doesn't want, to, doesn't want to be there. He wants to go home. Solidity wants a city in one piece. So... But there's a sense that the city must be defended for a few days at least. And I'm wondering if it's just that token, token siege is the whole point. Yeah, it's so it's a weird thing because it, I guess it sort of makes sense in the context of um, in general, like medieval armies had a reputation for taking the right to sack a city, right? If a city is taken by force, um, you know, Anything that happens is basically legal uh, for for days on end. Uh, and so you have days of uh, pillaging and assault and such. Um, I don't know if like I, I don't know this period, um, but certainly in the the way that Saladin is portrayed, he seems pretty well in control of his force. It just seems doubtful that he could have that he could not have stopped his army from getting out of hand and even the most hot-headed of his uh you know of his officers doesn't seem that bad uh right so it's it's kind of an inexplicable denouement where orlando bloom is like we have to make the city so difficult to storm that they will now abide by these terms and let us uh you know leave under our own power and uh leave to leave to um you know to get back to christian lands i guess maybe the thing that's being passed over a little bit is in a movie that is very much about uh conscience i guess the implication is the real term that the uh forces of saladin probably would have imposed was uh forced conversion 
Uh, that's certainly one of the fears that a lot of the Christian yep. characters are uh, obsessing over uh, throughout a lot of this film. And so maybe that is one of the other things is this this notion that um, they're fighting for the ability to choose, you know, choose choose to follow one's conscience uh, at the end of the siege. But either way, it's very contrived. Basically, these characters don't have a good reason to fight. The The villain of the film has gotten completely smoked uh at this point and now it is just a fight between two characters who quite explicitly are going through the motions i mean historically speaking saladin did threaten to eliminate the franks in jerusalem i guess uh that you know in the, he was going to take them out and uh by balian's uh threat was to you know, kill every single muslim and destroy the holy shrines uh if quarter wasn't given uh and you know that's a very simple negotiation. Uh, quarter was given and everything was fine. Um, and uh, even people who couldn't pay the ransom were let go. It was a very, and by accounts, a very low ransom as well. So I think you're right that, you know, it's, a lot of this is about, could be about the visual force conversion, but the movie takes religion. It does not take religion very seriously at all, does it? No, very. It's very contemptuous of it. I mean, um, it, I mean, it, 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 I think it even questions like the idea of faith, like the idea of believing in anything. Um, though, I mean, Saladin is of course portrayed very well, and Baldwin is portrayed very well. But priests, there's not a good priest anywhere in the entire film. Uh, none of the Templars come out well. One of the Hospitallers does, I guess. Um, yeah. But. Um, Anybody who's persuaded serious about their faith or sees their faith as a motivating reason to do anything is, is suspicious, back. completely suspicious, you know, and obviously suspicious because they're hypocrites. You know, they're not serious people. Uh, you know, no, no serious Christian would be a murderer. That's just ridiculous thought. So clearly they're lying about their beliefs they're not, or their beliefs are the problem. Well, um, and, and so again, I think this is such a movie of its moment where you yeah. have this notion that uh, we're, we're in the early years of a war on terror and you have this um, oft repeated notion that any <clears throat> any Islamic terrorist is obviously in full breach of their faith, uh, right? That their faith is false because uh, no true uh, no, no true Muslim would commit an act of terrorism or political violence, right? That's kind of one of the ways that the religious overtones of this war were 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 tempted to be diffused at the time. And likewise, you did have things like that coming from a uh, sort of, you know, apocalyptic Christian vision uh, at the time as well. And so this movie's very much trying to adopt the uh, the lens of like humanist rail humanist rail politique that was sort of being piped into our politics uh at the time where like saladin is a respectful man of faith but he respects all faiths just like baldwin does um the people who are driving the notion of religious war every single one of them huge piece of shit um and obviously like a an, an apostate uh and and would be called out as such if they hadn't already corrupted the institutions yeah there's this it, it really is in so many ways uh, a film of its time uh you know in, in really scott questioning the entire mission 
of you know Middle Eastern wars. Um, it, it's hard to. Re- I mean, I'm not sure how old our audience is. I think many of them are you know my age uh, or your age, so they probably remember the war pretty well and some of the rhetoric uh, that went along with it. You know, there was there was a lot of very bad faith rhetoric on uh, the conservative side in favor of the war, on the liberal side in favor of the war, um, and even in some of the anti-war stuff, there's a lot of bad faith uh, criticism. And I'm not sure this movie is in bad faith. I think Ridley Scott believes a lot of this, but it's a very naive movie. It's a very innocent movie in many ways, even though it is so cynical about politics and about faith and about relationships, there's a certain naivete to it in that it thinks, you know... If we can just talk. If if we have have the innocence of a child, the innocence of a village blacksmith, uh, he can talk to kings, and he can fight wars, and he can uh, get through assassination attempts, and he can bring he he literally brings water to the desert. He goes to a town that's given uh, okay. to him. I hate this shit, Troy. Can I talk about this real quick? Yeah, talk about this real quick. Okay, so he along on the way back to um on the way back to the Holy Land, uh, Liam Neeson's character is killed in. I guess it's not really an ambush. They basically go on the run and kill a bunch of cops. Um, but he gets wounded uh, as they're trying to bring in uh, Orlando Bloom's Balian for killing that terrible priest. And uh, so he dies and Balian inherits the estate um, in in the Holy Land. And he gets there and yeah, it's kind of a um, like just it's a it's a desert holding uh you know the 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 fields are empty and uh desiccated and he gets there and everyone's just like yeah this place is kind of a hellhole but it's your hellhole and he has the idea like hey what if we irrigated and everyone's like holy shit like irrigation why don't we dig a well it's incredible it is the most like it is like probably the most white savior thing that happens in this movie where this dude is just what? like, you know, it'd be but, great as if we had. Why wasn't Liam water. Neeson? Why wasn't Liam Neeson, who everyone holds up as this great ruler of this like shitty township? Why didn't he irrigate the goddamn lands? What was he doing in well, his he time was in the busy, Holy Land? Um, defending Baldwin, right? It seems like very yeah. clear he was a pet uh, at, at the Imperial right. Court. Um, Man, irrigate your lands, dude. You, you get more taxes that way. Yeah, it's but yeah, so he solves that and then later the movie repeats this where um he has the idea of like what if we ranged our siege weapons? And everyone's like, "My god, you're a military genius." <laughs> like we never we've never seen anyone like you uh around here. And I get what the movie is is doing. It's it, like he is sort of portrayed from the first as He's kind of an omnicompetent uh, character, right? Like, he's not just a village blacksmith. It's implied that he has probably served in some sort of war. He's been a siege engineer. It's said directly in the director's cut. I mean, it's not in the theatrical version, but the director directly said, yeah, he was was an engineer who served in war. And he's asked which, which is some lord fighting some other lord. So it's not even known if it's, like, in France or somewhere else. But, yeah, he's he's an engineer. Um, with so yeah, the whole idea of 
that whole scene at the end where they're mocking, marking off all the white stones for all the ranges for their uh, catapults and mini trebuchets. And it's like, oh man, it's good, 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 good thing. One of the, all that whole horde of army didn't kick over any of your rocks, so you'd be hosed. But you know, I did, I did at least appreciate that the movie set the table uh, yeah. for this kind of stuff, and always does. Yeah. Like, yeah, um, it, oh yeah, it, there, there, there are there are any surprises. And it keeps the political view in mind, like the notion you start to realize why Saladin hasn't closed out this war with uh, hasn't uh, kicked off the war with Baldwin because Baldwin's competent at the very least. Like, it seems like that fight could go either way as long as Baldwin's standing there. And Saladin knows, like, once Baldwin's off stage, uh, there goes their level three general. Right. Um, and the guys who are up next are just total crap. Um, and you know, this is kind of what opens Jerusalem, uh, to, to the siege is you have, uh, in Brennan Gleason, in, uh, Martin Sokas's uh, Guy de la Sunyan, uh, he, both of these guys are hell bent on getting this war that neither of them is, is talented enough to win. Right. And neither is, what's that line about, uh, fascism where, it has to believe simultaneously in the imminence and omnipresence of uh of the of the threat of the enemy but also can't rationally assess the strength of the enemy and so it can never accurately assess relative power and that's kind of these guys to a t uh right they're like we need to fight saladin uh before it's too late but also it'll be easy to fight saladin because he's beneath us, and we have, yeah. the, we have the we have the word of God on our side, and you know it's very it this is very much you know they all greet us as liberators, uh, type stuff. You know, it's it's all going to be easy. Uh, there aren't there are going to be no consequences for marching to Tuhatin and being cut off from water by an army that beats us in cavalry three to one. Um. And they and they get they get completely destroyed. They get, it's one of the great defeats uh, in medieval history. And historically, the Babalion was at, but he escaped. Uh, smart guy. Um, but it's just one of these. This whole the, the whole yeah, it's it is an interesting climax, and in that it does have this. I mean, we didn't even get to see Saladin's victory. We didn't get to see the battle of Hatti because the foregone really conclusion. Any, yeah, there aren't any great battle scenes of there. We just see the corpses. We see the Christian army marching off, and then we see the corpses. Uh, and the budget is saved for the great uh, siege uh, at the end. Um, this is a movie with not a lot of battle scenes in it. It's got some. It's got you know your your duels. It's got Orlando Bloom fighting some guys off, and it has you know the 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 SWAT raid gone bad in the forest at the beginning. Um, but uh, in general. It is uh, it, it it's a it's a lot of great people in this movie. I just want to say that the character, the actors in this movie, they got a top notch cast here, even like the small parts. Oh, it's they, it's a stacked cast. Um, I mean, Kevin McKidd, who played Varinus in Rome, has a bit part. Uh, Nikolai Coster Waldo has a bit part. Um, Ian Glenn pops up as. You know, Richard the Lionheart at the end in like the most pointless Richard cameo since Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. 
uh, it's just because that's what Richard the Lion does. Richard does. He pops up at the end of movies and talks to the hero. Um, it is just uh, Alexander Siddiq, uh, uh, Bashir, Doctor Bashir is in this. Oh wait, as, uh, shit! He's one of Saladin's advisor, the guy whose life. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That that that's Bashir. Oh my uh, god. So there's this fantastic, and, 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 and you mentioned Edward Norton, whose head is, whose face is hidden behind a mask through the entire thing. But is utterly uh, arresting in his scenes. Completely um, great. Yeah. That scene where he meets Baldwin and explains to him again this concept of conscience, right? That like there's political yeah. expedience, and that is what surrounds us at court. Yeah. But Baldwin, as a guy who's already got one foot in the hereafter that warning right that like when you stand before god it will not do to say uh ver- what was it virtue was not in fashion at the time or something like that it's a great yeah. line uh basically talking about how the games of court will pale uh if you're ever called to account for your conscience and actually this is a thing i want to talk about with this movie um in terms of conscience versus expedience, I think the movie does lean hard into a notion of um, there's no more relativism uh, that we want to that that a yeah. hero fucks with. Um, there is your code, and you live by it, and you die by it. And I am not sure it's so cut and dried in this movie that he would not have been better off. Uh, Balian, I mean. Uh, being a little bit of a snake. It reminded me a lot of uh, two things. Um, one is Gladiator, when Maximus gets the offer to become the like regent of Rome, basically. Yeah. And rather than like prepare to like make that handoff happen, he denies it. He wants nothing to do with it. And so like absents himself from he doesn't tell anyone. He completely absents himself from the stage at a critical moment. And then Ned Stark in um, Game of Thrones, where he has that opportunity to basically strike during the night uh, with Renly Baratheon and take out the Lannisters um, in, in a single strike and establish, uh, you know, the succession in favor of Renly. And in all those cases, the honorable character makes the honorable decision for, like, morally clear reasons. But if you look at the outcomes... It's a disaster for everybody. Like, the character's conscience remains clean, but all the blood that follows does kind of trace back to their hands in some ways. And this movie has a really clear-cut example of that, where Baldwin's last act is basically to ask uh, Balian, will you step in? We're going to put Guy to death. Yeah, You're going to come in. You're going to marry Guy's wife, Sibylla. His sister, Baldwin's sister. Yep. Um, that will make you the regent for uh, her son, Baldwin's heir. And effectively, you'll be the power in Jerusalem. And you're the person who can hold this together. And Balian refuses, even though he knows Guy is terrible. Um, <laughs> Reynald is just an evil monster. And uh, this is kind of the last chance that the kingdom of Jerusalem has uh, to, to keep from going under and falling into the hands of these snakes. And he refuses to do it. And I think uh, Sibylla's last line to Balian before it all goes 
sideways is, you know, the day will come when you wish you did a little evil. Um, and I don't think that I mean, day comes for Balian, but I, I kind of think maybe it should have. Yeah, I mean, there's just, I mean, Baldwin does give that great, you know, virtue wasn't convenient at the time. You should always, you know, do what the right thing is. And then he makes that devil's offer to Balian. So, no, you know, it's actually be more convenient and better for everybody if you just let me kill this guy. And then you marry my sister, and then I know Jerusalem's in good hands. And Balian follows, takes the virtuous act, I guess, and says, sort of the narrow personal virtuous act, and says, I don't want to be party to a murder and know what's coming, in effect. I, I don't want to, I'll, I'll, I'll kill Guy in a duel, but I won't, you know, see him be murdered just so I can become king. That's just. Even though it wouldn't be shit. murder, right? Try, like, it would be execution right. for just cause. Yeah, they would, yeah, they, 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 I mean, Guy was clearly doing some shitty stuff and they could have done it up. But, but Balian was seeing it as murder. He sees it as, you know, because he would be getting something out of it, right? It's a price he's profiting from it. And if Bubba wanted to execute Guy, he always could. The virtuous thing is Guy executes him for his own reasons. And then you see what happens. If you get the offer beforehand, it's now a corrupt offer. And that's what Balian is backing away from. But yeah, it would have been better for probably Jerusalem if he'd accepted the offer. But then you have Balian having to defend it against maybe Saladin. Maybe maybe nothing changes. I mean, you probably don't get a battle at Hattin. Jerusalem's siege might go longer because now the Templars are there. They're all wiped out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know... All for want of a horseshoe nail. Who knows how the course of fake movie history would have gone? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is this was Adam Serwer's uh, verdict on Ned Stark's choice, which is that um, one of the themes of that show. Um, let's not say the show. One of the themes of the books before the show drove yeah. everything off the cliff um, is that everyone's everyone's scheming and everyone thinks they can control events, but they really can't. Ned Stark knows this. And the only thing he knows is that if he does the wrong thing, he'll have done the wrong thing. He doesn't know how that's going to turn out. He doesn't know if, you know, seizing power will actually work or, or bring or carry off. So I guess, you know, that is kind of the defense of who knows how much he even could have changed uh, events. But what we do know is him failing to act plunges everybody uh, into hell as they basically fall under the sway of uh, Guy. And again, Brendan Gleeson, uh, just surprised he didn't chew his way out of that jail cell uh, they'd kept him in because he appears to have been uh, prancing his entire time in that cell, Troy, where he's just he's just kind of prancing and dancing. It's a very weird... Reynald's a weird dude in this movie. He's He's drunk and he's angry and he kills Muslims for pretty much no reason. Um, and again, it's not clear how much of this is bigotry, how much is religiosity, how much of this is him just being a monster, but he's a fantastically awful character and you just root for him to get what he deserves the whole yeah. way through. And he is just, he is demonic. Like, he doesn't even seem, yeah. his motives do appear to be, um, like, he just lives for the violence. Yeah. Um, he has no plan. He has no vision. He just loves the carnage. Um, and anything that allows more carnage to happen is awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's I mean, a, I mean, what's the point of having all of these soldiers if they're not in a war? 
yeah it's a it's a striking it's a striking performance um what do you think so before i wrap up here um i remember not hating the theatrical cut but i also just felt like it was kind of a dull war story um there wasn't a lot to it i did find myself enjoying the, the director's cut quite a bit more not because it changes much with the siege but i think it does recontextualize the characters in ways that make all of it a lot more interesting well it only adds like 20 more minutes and, not, and a lot of them are small character bits like uh at the beginning of the movie introducing more about balloon's background the connection between him and neeson there's some stuff with the child king of jerusalem where uh his leprosy his suspected leprosy and his euthanasia is brought in. So there's a whole subplot in there, which isn't developed very well in the theatrical version. So it's a lot of small moments, but it's amazing how much small moments can do for pacing and characterization and drawing the whole thing together. Um, I'm not sure if this is Bloom's best performance, but it's certainly better than what he does in Troy. Uh, Balian is somebody with a personality, he's somebody with goals, he's somebody with desires. Uh, he's a confused character in many ways. Um, but it's certainly something, the director's cut is, if you, if I mean, I'm kind of, I, I liked Kingdom of Heaven when it came out, but I like the director's cut much, much more. Um, that's not always the case, and I'm kind of iffy on director's cuts in general. I'm one of the people who thinks, you know, if it's, leave it in, for God's sake, I'll sit in my butt for four hours, or learn to edit better. Um, but, you know, I remember movies had inter- intermissions once upon a time. So uh, I, I, I do recommend checking out the director's cut if you haven't seen it. It does add just little bits here and there that really do, do add up to a much, much more cohesive whole. Yeah, I and, think... Um... And I still want my good Castle Siege game. Where's my good Castle Siege game? Because the Stronghold games never really got there for me. They've generally been worse than where they've come out. The old castles games generally weren't great seasons. No, because it was like dudes would. It was like tower defense. It was it was tower defense before tower defense. Yeah. Um, and so where? So what about where, Lords of the where, Realm? Where the, Lords of the Realm. Now, there's some game I have not played in quite some time. I have to look back on that. I think if Gannett suffered from the um, the sieges were RTS battles. Yeah. Uh, and they were a little bit silly, but I think it did get at like the quirks of maybe the local like feudal economy. Um, and sort of how everything is built toward powering this hyper-localized uh, military machine. Uh, but yeah, I I don't think... Um, again, I think it's a, it's a tricky thing because... What do you think is the most interesting part of sieges, right? Like for me, I think the construction of the defenses, like siege architecture is probably the most interesting thing to think about as a player. I mean, it's a whole. It, 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 it's the moves and the counter moves, right? I mean, yeah. most sieges, most sieges don't last, you know, ten years. Most last a couple of months at most. A lot of them are over relatively quickly because people realize no help's coming that they quit. I mean, um, so you don't have things like Troy or you know, occasional Dutch siege or gone for years. Those just generally don't happen. They're over quite quite quickly. But a good siege and a good interesting siege, the most celebrated sieges, are ones where it's not just taking down a strong point. But like you said about, you know, the last stand stuff, like, you know, the Alamo and, you know, uh, 55 days in Peking, where the besieged know they're in trouble and have to take steps to hold out as long as they can until help can get there. 
So it is, and the other side trying to, you know, oh, we need to cut off uh, their water supply. Now, how do we do that? We need to cut off their food supply. We need to prevent their alliances uh, from forming. And the defensive side, how do we get our food coming in? How do we stop their miners from weakening our walls? Uh, how do we stop their construction of their, their, their trenches? Um, beforehand, where do we, we have limited people to defend the wall. The walls are too big. Where do we put our people? Where are they coming from? Um, all of this stuff. Uh, there's a quite good uh, thing on Netflix um, about the Ottoman siege of Constantinople. And it is, what's it called? Uh, this is an endorsement. Like it's, this uh, is the, yeah, I, I, the Netflix I, I, stuff is so uneven. Well, the thing, I mean, Rise of Empires is a very uneven series. I mean, their second series, the first one was on uh, Commodus or Marcus Aurelius. It was kind of laughable. Uh, the second series was on uh, Julius Caesar. It was terrible. I couldn't even finish it. But those are periods I know quite a bit about. So maybe it's also true of Ottoman. Maybe it is also historically ridiculous. But from what I could find, it mostly lines up. Uh, it is about uh, the, you know, the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It is about how do you take, how do you protect, first of all, the greatest, the longest walls in the world? Uh, this, this is a siege. It was about 50 days long. It's not a huge siege. Uh, but, you know, Constantinople, as, as a drama, it holds up very well. Constantinople's holding out, waiting for the Catholic world to come and help them. Are they going to come? Are they not going to come? They don't know. because Their communications are cut off. Uh, how do the Ottomans get around, uh, get through the chain? What's their, since they can't defeat uh, the Genoan fleet, despite superiority of numbers? Uh, what do you do when you build the biggest cannon in the world to take down the walls? It can only fire three days, three times a day, and it explodes. Um, this whole measure and countermeasure and offer and counteroffer. Uh, we'll give the city to you. We'll pay homage to you if you let the city go. No, give me the city, I'll let you go. And all of these negotiation back and forth uh, between a, a figure of destiny like Mehmed II, who sees himself as the one foretold to take this great Christian city and someone like Constantine who sees himself as the heir to Rome. And one of the great things about this series, it's narrated by Charles Dance, who is Tywin Lannister in uh, the Game of Thrones TV series. And throughout it, he calls them the Romans. He doesn't call them the Byzantines. His narration is always, and then the Romans. So he's consciously connecting the viewer to how Constantine saw himself as a Roman and the heir to Rome. And I just think it's a really, I mean, at least someone who's an expert on the fall of Constantinople to take me up on that. But I think it's a really good portrayal of a Renaissance siege. Um, and I recommend it for that uh, reason alone. Okay. Uh, definitely worth checking out. It, it is certainly no less historically accurate than either Troy or Kingdom of Heaven. Did you, which of these movies did you end up preferring? Uh, I, think Kingdom of, I think Kingdom of Heaven. I think I ended up because I like a lot about Troy, but it's almost all like a part of it. I think Orlando Bloom is just too weak a Paris for me. Yeah, there's yeah, and I think with the director's cut, there's not really much that's inert in um, Kingdom of Heaven. Like the aside where Sibylla realizes that her son has leprosy, right? And the entire and again the the, the theme that was completely cut out of the theatrical uh, version, which is that this is very much a movie about like. Um, not just conscience, but also like the 
the measure of suffering uh, that that is people's lot uh, in life, but also especially in this period uh, uh, there, and how people there, process there, that. There, there is a director's cut of, of Troy. So I looked into that. Um, it sounds I, I way I, bloodier. I understand it has a lot more blood and a lot more nudity. And those are the two big things it adds. Which but also lo- also a little bit more of, you know, inter- internal Trojan conflict. But primarily the nudity and the gore are added. Yeah, um, I, I think the thing that really turned me off is it also sounds like uh, they started inserting random soundtrack elements uh, into it and replacing parts of the James Horner score, which is, you know, fine, uh, you know, yeah. whatever. I, I, I've actually, I like James Horner, um, but yeah, I, it sounds like uh, the Ridley Scott director's cut for Kingdom of Heaven is like a fully like realized, conceptualized yeah. work. It sounds like Troy is pretty close to that. Uh, it's certainly what Peterson kind of wanted to do with, um, like, he wanted to have, like, the sack of Troy being as horrific as it is in the Aeneid, uh, right? Where, like, it's just a lurid nightmare. Yeah. They shot that, um, and that's in yeah. the director's cut. But also you get random, like, sound cues from, um, like, apparently they rescored the fight between Hector and Achilles uh, with the main theme from, like, Planet of the Apes which is an odd decision. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, uh, maybe, maybe we will check that out uh, again some, sometime down the road and we can, we can revise our views on all of this. But that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. This episode was produced by TJ Hafer. Three Moves Ahead is host on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. It also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then... For Troy, this is Rob Zachney saying good night.